Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's coverage of the newly signed Clean Slate Act. Then, Elizabeth E.P. Press brings us an interview about a bill that would offer reparations for slavery in New York State. Later on, Sina Bazila Hickey gives us a look into gives us a look into how Friendsgiving will be celebrated at Cafe Euphoria. After that, Brea Barthel gives us a preview of the events happening at the Troy Public Library in November and December. Finally, for this week's the Rhythm Re- the Rhythm Rebellion segment, Teen t- uh, Taina Asili. Taina Asili. Interviews Ivelisse Diaz. Ivelisse Diaz about the world of Bomba. But first, here are the headlines. Albany's free school started in 1968 on Elm Street in the Mansion neighborhood in Albany. It is the nation's oldest urban alternative school. However, it is close to closing as it only has one teacher and about a dozen students left, and its bills are mounting. In recent years, in the Hudson's Cats, the, in recent years, the Hudson Catskill Housing Coalition has been keeping the school afloat. Global Companies has applied for a state permit to open up a biodiesel operating facility at the Port of Albany, while some tout biodiesel as a cleaner as a cleaner alternative to fossil fuels. Other groups say such fuels have environmental environmental problems of their own. Some environmentalists also worry that the proposal could have the proposal could lead to the return of of oil trains shipping crude oil from places like the the Bacon of Fields of North Dakota to the port area. The Times Union reports that at least some of the unionized workers with ShopRite will see extended health insurance coverage. Severance payment and a 401k lump sum payment after the five grocery after the five local grocery stores officially close on Saturday. More former students have filed sexual abuse claims against Hoosac School in eastern Rensselaer County, changing charging that school officials 20 years ago failed to take action against several teachers they knew were acting inappropriately, improperly. The Albany County Sheriff's Office, as well as other county departments, can now hire staff who live outside of the county after the legislature repealed the residency requirement. The Gazette reports that plans to convert a former key bank building on a former key bake building on Eastern Parkway and to Schenectady's second retail retail cannabis dispensary are on hold after the city's planning commission tabled planning commission tabled the proposal over a lack of tabled the proposal over a lack of details. The owners pres- presently have a license to grow marijuana and have applied for a license to do retail sales. The Schenectady Police Department has received several federal funds to buy 52 new bulletproof vests, along with technology for officers including night vision devices and a mobile license plate reader. Our next headline is from Public News is from Public News Service. 
Rural New York organizations are working to tackle issues with rural housing. Rural counties throughout the state are suffering from aging housing stock and an ever-dwindling supply. The New York State Comptroller found in 2021, 10 rural counties had 5,500 fewer housing units than they did in 2016. Megan Murphy with the rural housing group Adirondack Roots says places like Essex County are seeing the ripple effects of rural New York's housing problems. The county itself has dozens of jobs that are going unfilled because one of the hardest parts of this is that hiring in people from outside, they're not able to find housing. So we're hearing this from healthcare institutions, we're hearing this from nonprofits and from others. She says solutions require new rental units and affordable housing projects in rural areas. Murphy adds that while most rural counties are facing a housing shortage, the problems look different in each place. Essex County, for example, needs increased funding for Adirondack Roots' existing home rehabilitation and New York State's mobile home replacement program. New York State is investing in rural areas. Several new rental developments have been built across the state in 2023. But Murphy says new projects are expensive and potential renters are already struggling to make ends meet with low wages. When you're talking about new builds, it really is how do we figure out how to create a situation where we can either reduce the cost of building or create a situation where there is a subsidy for folks so that they can get into new homes. She adds this also applies to maintaining existing homes. Murphy finds there isn't a silver bullet to the issues surrounding rural housing, but argues it will take an interconnected, holistic approach to solve them. Edwin J. Vieira reporting. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. And that's it for headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. The governor has signed the Clean Slate Act into law, making over 2 million New Yorkers eligible for automatic sealing of their criminal records, making it easier for them to access jobs and various services. Lukey Forbes of the Hudson's Catskill Housing Coalition talked to Mark Dunley about the importance of this new law. We're talking with uh, Lukey Forbes, who is the campaign coordinator for the Hudson Caskill Housing Coalition. And uh, earlier this week, the governor signed the uh, Clean Slate Act into law, which will make over 2 million New Yorkers eligible for their criminal records to be sealed, make it easy for them to get jobs and other services. Um, so, uh, Lukey, is a long time coming. I, I assume people are pretty happy this bill is finally uh, law. How is that going to help people? We are so excited that this bill has been signed by the governor and are so glad that she stands with the families that this is going to affect. This is going to help um, really generations of New Yorkers as it will allow folks to have access to housing, job opportunities, and educational opportunities. The same things that we know not only lower the, the crime rate, but overall recidivism rate as well. Um, In other states, we've seen um, stats that show that individuals who receive record sealings are actually less likely to commit another, um, get another conviction, even lower than the general public. So even lower than individuals who never committed a crime, those individuals who have and have received record sealings um, statistically are, it's, it's way lower of a risk for them to even 
think of reciting because of their access to now be able to really create stable lives for themselves. Now, I understand for misdemeanor, a person will have to wait for three years after they have finished their sentence and completed parole. Not all, a lot of felonies are not covered, but for felonies, you have to wait at least uh, um, eight years. W were there things in the law that's been passed that could be improved, or did you pretty much get what the, the advocates were looking for? And I also understand that a lot of the business community actually came out in favor of it because they also see it as a way to get more people employed. Yeah, there's so many different large um, companies, Fortune 500 companies, and, and large employers that have supported Clean Slate. There is a, a national worker shortage going on, so a bill that will really allow it to be easier for individuals to return into the workforce is something that um, uh, many of the, the, the businesses in our communities have agreed with. And, and I'm sorry, can you repeat that other part of your question one more time? Just so uh, I can make sure that I'm answering it correctly. Well, I mean, one the, the question was, you know, our businesses uh, supportive of it. The other question was, were the things that you would like to see into the law that did not actually make it into the final version? Um, there were we in the in the original version. Um, we did start off with uh, some some things that we really would have liked to see. However, this was a, a agreement that advocates as well as legislators were comfortable with. We did have a lower um, time frame for ceilings, just off of the sense that individuals having access to ceilings work in order to really help lower the recidivism rate, but really offer that second chance for individuals um, in a more realistic time frame that is necessary for them, but again, what was agreed upon is something that was um, really comfortable for advocates and legislators. And I assume this is not a, a case of moving forward, but people, for instance, already have been convicted in certain sentences of misdemeanors. If it's three years old, they can start now getting an expunge. It goes, it goes backward, not just here in the future. Well, there is no expungement with this. It's in ceiling. And because it's a ceiling, individuals um, like that work in law enforcement or any job that does federal background checks and specific and certain licensing agencies, as well as the Department of Education, all still have access to individuals' records. So this isn't something that just goes away or is expunged. It just really allows for individuals to have that access to be encouraged to apply for a higher position to be encouraged to apply for housing in certain um with like in for certain housing it will really allow for individuals to really be able to to access the resources that have been restricted to them in the United States an uh, individual who has a felony is restricted from about 44,000 different um things so a bill like clean slate and New York being a real progressive stance where we're recognizing felonies, well, some felonies as well as misdemeanors, unlike other states, we're really moving in a more just and, and restorative justice manner where we're really recognizing the harm that restricting individuals to having access to stabilizing resources does to our communities, not just to a person, but to their families and how that affects generations of New Yorkers. Now, why did it take, you know, I've been hearing about the Clean Slate Act, you know, for quite a few years. Why did it 
sort of take so long to pass. And, you know, I've certainly seen some criticism still by some, I think, particularly Republicans. Any chances that there'll be legal challenges to the law? I'm, well, we live in a world where we have to recognize that there are individuals that make a living and live off of the justice system working in the way that it does, even if it doesn't work. And we have to recognize that at times, legislation is going to pass that goes against what we have been taught and what some legislators are going to say the answer is. However, Clean Slate is a no-brainer bill. Not only does the statistics show it, but basic logic shows that Clean Slate works. So any individual that says anything negative about Clean Slate or tries to say like individuals who are currently reciting um, within the within the eight-year bracket, they're referring to things that are just fear-monger and has nothing to do with the actual facts of this bill. The facts of this bill is a person will have to complete their sentence, complete their time post-release, then complete eight years without committing another infraction while still being limited on access to stabilizing resources. These are the people who have grind and shown and proved that they don't want to go back to prison, that they deserve access to a second chance, that they deserve to, to, to have the freedoms to be able to stabilize their lives for not only themselves, but also their families, their loved ones, and their children's. And we can see that generational impact and how that's really going to affect New York and the rest of the country as, um, as we look at bills and, and policies like this as we reimagine what public safety looks like, um, what housing bills look like, with what bills like this looks like. Um, as someone who was incarcerated at the age of 15 years old, coming home and not only having a limited work experience, other than what I had from while being in prison, where I was only paid pennies for my services, that's a different issue. But um, also the felony being a restricting factor. Um, as someone who looks at history as I do this work, we, this is a legal form of segregation where we know that 80% of the individuals in New York alone ha are black and brown and Latinx um, that make up the, 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 the bracket of individuals who are gonna be affected by this, where I would see um, felons aren't allowed in certain, in certain brackets of life. It's like just, just another term for saying people who look like me aren't allowed. Um, we know that black and brown bodies make up the most of the prison system. So this is also a racial bill. Um, this bill covers so many brackets and that's why you see so many different people, um, places. I met so many people and different agencies, organizations supporting this bill because this is a bill that really encompasses so many different values and reasonings why this makes sense. So anyone who speaks about it in a negative manner just does not want to identify the facts, does not want to have a actual logical conversation about how we keep New York safe, how we better spend taxpayer money, how we really generate, um, how we really fix generations of New Yorkers. Those individuals just want fear monger. They want to live in a society that only um, exacerbates the process. I mean, the problem because they, they thrive off of this, this, this enforcement lifestyle that we live at. 
uh, that we live by. Uh, I'll just mention you, you know, said eight years, that's a wait period that's for felonies. I believe for misdemeanors, it's three years. And not all felonies are covered. It excludes sex crimes and class A felonies like murder and terrorism, arson, kidnapping, a few, yeah. a few others. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking with Lukey Forbes, uh, Hudson Caskill Housing Coalition, uh, about the uh, finally getting a clean slate act signed into law. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. The Clean Slate Act was signed by the governor on Thursday, November 16th. Did you know that slavery remained legal in New York until 1827? Jeffner Hadlock speaks with Elizabeth E.P. Press about a New York State reparations bill that um, activists are pushing for Governor Hochul to sign. The bill that lawmakers passed over the summer is about considering reparations for slavery in New York State. Today we are joined by Jennifer Hadlock, who is with Fund for Reparations Now and Showing Up for Racial Justice NYC. Jennifer is here to talk about a New York State reparations bill that has passed both houses, but Governor Hochul has yet to sign it. Jennifer, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me, E.P. So, Jennifer, can you just tell us what is this Reparations Community Commission, or what is the legislation that has passed in New York State so far? So the bill would create a task force, a New York State commission to study reparations remedies, and it will hold hearings throughout New York State, hearing from various stakeholders, and then we'll make recommendations to the legislature for any suggested remedies it deems proper. And the bill has been introduced for many years, um, but it finally passed the Assembly and the New York State Senate, and it is sitting on Governor Hochul's desk. And just to dive into it a little bit further, why is the issue of reparations important now? Well, we did have a uh, racial reckoning a few years ago, and people thought, oh, maybe we'll finally have some real change. But um, until we actually address one of the original sins of uh, this country, the enslavement of Black people, and all the harms that have come since then um, due to race, we really can't have a true racial reckoning. Um, The country can't live up to what it claims to be without addressing this. Sadly, it has taken this long for it to happen. Um, And New York has a very special role because of our uh, connections to insurance and money and the amount of money that was made in the North here um, due to slavery, as well as the amount of people who were enslaved here in New York. And just to clarify, these bills that were passed in New York State House and New York State Senate is to study how to do reparations? Yes. Then down the line, there may be the possibility of some sort of reparations agreement. Could you just go into this a little bit further? Sure, yes. The process has happened in California and a couple of uh, more local communities where there is a um, 
group of people that is tasked with having hearings and doing research into the harms that have happened uh, due to enslavement and racism, um, and then come up with some proposals about how to make repair for those harms. And this can range many, many different ways. Um, people usually think of it just as uh, money, but that is only one way of uh, doing repair. Um, it's an important way, but it's only one way. And um, so this would just be a, a group that would come up with proposals and hear all of the different harms and document that. And then there would have to be another step to actually implement or make the repairs. Yes. And that's the stage that California is at at this moment. They have done the report and now they are in the process of trying to figure out how to implement those different repairs. Thanks for that, Jennifer. And so California is uh, a bit ahead of New York, it sounds like, in this process. You're with the Fund for Reparations now. What is your group like that California has come up with in their proposals? Um, well, the Fund for Reparations now is has been um, around for several years trying to implement the National African American Reparations Commission 10-point plan. Um, and there are 10 areas that NARC recommends for doing repair. Um, it's a pretty detailed report. We like a lot of what California um, has done, and their report is really amazing. Uh, California did an amazing job of ha hosting hearings that were accessible and that lots and lots of people participated in, um, and they had some pretty intense conversations and got to discuss a lot of really important issues. Um, and they've done an amazing report, which I recommend that people read to learn about the history of California um, and all of the harms that have happened there. I'm hoping that some of the things that came out, though, that may limit um, who is able to benefit will be better here in New York and that we will be broader in thinking up through how much harm has happened and that we can actually do repair in many ways instead of limiting. And, you know, you've mentioned that this bill passed both the House and the Senate in New York State and Hochul has yet to sign it. On Monday, November 20th, there will be a rally in New York City calling for a road for reparations, calling for Hochul to sign this? Is that is that the objective? Or could you tell us a little bit more about this planned rally on November 20th? Yes. Um, it's bringing together the New York City Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus and the New York State Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Caucuses to try to pressure Governor Hochul to the bill. Um, and as a person of European descent who lives in New York City, I feel very strongly that this is an important uh, bill to be signed by the governor, and I hope she will do the right thing and sign it so we can move forward. Now, Governor Hochul finally signed the Clean Slate bill this week. <laughs> what do you know or why do you think she has yet to sign the reparations bill? I 
don't know why she hasn't signed it. Um, there actually were some changes at the very last minute in the session to try to make her more likely to sign it. She gets to appoint three people onto the commission, um, which was not in the original version of the bill. So I thought that that would make it more likely that she would sign. Um, and I don't think that she has made any public statement about why she hasn't signed yet. So, yes, she's still signing bills. So there is still hope that she will will sign it. Now, Jennifer, uh, as we start to wrap up this interview, I'm wondering uh, what I haven't asked you that is important to know uh, about this bill and your work around it. I think there's a perception that a lot of white people would be against this, but I actually find that a lot of people believe that it is necessary and that it is important and that there needs to be repair in order for us to be able to be a racially just society. Um, and it's interesting to me that white people think other white people won't be for it, um, which just adds to this strange dynamic. Um, but I asked everyone to call Governor Hochul and let her know that you think that she should sign this bill and that we need to have a reparations commission and actually reparations. Jennifer Hadlock, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much, EP, for having me. That was Elizabeth EP Press talking with Jennifer Hadlock about a potential slavery reparations bill in New York State. For those just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Choi, New York. If you like what you can hear, you can support this program by letting others know about our grassroots journalism. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Friendsgiving is an important tradition for many that has been gaining traction over the years. Cafe Euphoria is offering a Friendsgiving menu and event. And Alaska, in Alaska spoke with correspondent Sina Bazila Hickey about food, community, and the menu. So we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Indigenous Peoples Day or Native American Heritage Day. And many people are celebrating Friendsgiving and sharing their lovely goods. And so here I am at Cafe Euphoria with Alaska. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Alaska. I work here at Cafe Euphoria. You'll usually see me by the front making coffee drinks. How would you describe the food that is offered here? I would describe it as very cultural and also very wide with its variety on what you can change, especially since we offer a lot of non-meat options of typical meat dishes such as a BLT or a pulled pork sandwich. We offer the vegan form of those kinds of sandwiches, you know? So it makes sense that a place like Cafe Euphoria is hosting Friendsgiving. Um, 
Is it both takeout and a food? Tell me, like, what are all the various ways that someone can come here and celebrate over food? So people are welcome to get to go, but they are also welcome to sit, stay here and eat and hang out like a normal Thanksgiving. Just This is for the kind of people who don't always have a family to go to on Thanksgiving or don't want to go. So, you know, they're welcome here. This is sort of a place where people can come, sit down, eat, and if they don't want to do that, then they can always go to go as well. Is this happening on Thanksgiving or are there other days? So this will be happening on Thanksgiving, but then post Thanksgiving, we will also have a Thanksgiving decompress on the 25th for people who went to Thanksgiving with their family and just sort of need to relax after a stressful holiday. What did you call it? it a decompress? Decompress. Decompress. So really it's focused on like mind, body, soul, like just like taking some time after what is not always an easy holiday. Yes. So just sort of relaxing, chatting with friends, sort of, you know, getting all that stress of the holidays off before we go right back into it. Even though there's a colonial history to Thanksgiving, the purpose that a lot of people take from it now is the community aspect of it. Cafe Euphoria is a really important place for community. What if somebody hasn't been here and is looking for a community? What is, how would you describe what's unique about this place? I think what makes us unique is more than what we offer in food and drink. I think it's the amount of events that we have where community is very welcome and encouraged. Like, our game nights are very family-focused. We have our open mics, which are more adult-focused. So there's really something for everyone here in terms of events or just hanging out in general. There's a lot of space for people to just be able to chat and relax. And I think what's most important to me is that there's always a sense of safety here for the community, for any community to come by and sort of feel that same sense of safety that I feel here. How long have you been working at Cafe Euphoria and how have you seen it grow over that time that you've been working here? I've been working since March and I've seen a lot of people come and go since then, but I've seen so much improvement within both the front and the back of the house. It's almost like these well-oiled gears now that are running together really well. And I think we've definitely expanded our community and gotten our message out there that, hey, you're welcome here. This is the place to be, you know? And it's a very unique model. It's not, like you mentioned, it's not just a cafe. It's not just a game place. We actually operate on a co-op model rather than a typical capitalist structure, I would say, of how a business should be run. So, you know, how there's typically a CEO and everything. Here, though, it's like we're all the CEOs and we're all the workers, which I think is really good because it gives you more of this open feel to discuss things and come up with ideas rather than this 
static company structure where someone up top makes a choice and then everyone just has to deal with it. These things can be talked over, we think about it, we mull them over, and we really try and work together to make this place the best that it can be. And I think that's also what makes us unique because we all get to be our own bosses. We all get to be our own owners of the cafe, you know? Why would you say that the co-op model isn't more frequently utilized? Is it a difficult structure or do people just gravitate towards power structures? Do you have any insight on that? I think in this society, I think it's really hard to make something in a co-op structure because you have to make sure that everyone is being paid the same, that everything is adequate for everyone. And, you know, in a capitalist society, that it's not as easy to operate on that level when you're trying to be a co-op and have everyone be sort of on the same level. You know, there are a lot of financial limitations. It, obviously, if we weren't limited by finances, this place would be, we'd be doing kind of sort of what we want, really engaging. I mean, there's a lot of limitations to a co-op business when you're living in a capitalist society. I want to talk about a little bit of the menu that you're offering for Friendsgiving. For the takeout menu, what is available to order? So for the takeout menu, we are having our vegan turkey made with tofu, um, masman curry, mm-hmm. mac and cheese, acorn squash, collard greens, brown rice, and a selection of pies for our to-go menu. And then... Oh, we were just given this gorgeous photo. Oh, yeah. And then for for here, we will be doing meat turkey, pork chops with olives, and baked potatoes as well. Oh, yeah. And and looks like we have a photo here of um, the meal, which looks really tasty. Oh, yeah. That looks gorgeous. If somebody wants to either take out or enjoy the Friendsgiving here in-house, what's the best way to get more information? Through our Facebook or other social medias or by coming in and just picking up a flyer. And you also have a website, right? Yes, we do. CafeEuphoria.org. What does Friendsgiving mean to you? Friendsgiving to me means that you have... A family outside of what people would consider your typical family. So, you know, genetic relation is, I guess, what people would consider family. But I think there is definitely a need for family outside of genetic family. Because genetic family isn't always welcoming. And sometimes your real family are the people around you, you know? Your community, the people you surround yourself with... And I think that's what's important about this Thanksgiving, this Friendsgiving, surrounding yourself with people who make you happy and who you want to be around with for a special holiday. Alaska, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, too. We know that the holiday seasons are not always easy for everybody, so wishing all of our listeners um, a wonderful time as we move into this. Friends, families, um, 
We appreciate all of you. Next up, Brea Barthel heads back to the Choi Public Library for an update on events happening in November and December. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Listeners, whether or not you live in Troy, you can take part in some great activities coming up at Troy Public Library in late November and early December. To tell us more about them, here are three of the librarians. Now we have Lori Dreyer, manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library, to tell us about some upcoming events. Hi, Bria. Uh, We have some great events coming up. On Tuesday, November 28th, we are making Tree of Life Pendants. Uh, We're doing a workshop here at the Lansingburg branch of the library. That starts at 5 p.m. All the supplies are provided. You are going to want to register for that one on our website, www.thetroylibrary.org. Head over to the left part, to the right part of that website, and go to library events to get to our calendar and sign up. After that, we have uh, Knit Basic Scarves at the main library. That's happening on Wednesday, November 29th at 10 a.m. And then that same day, November 29th at 2 p.m., we are discussing Tiffany Yannick's The Land of Love and Drowning here at the Lansingburg Branch Library. I'm sorry, you're discussing what? Tiffany Yannick, that's the author, and she wrote The Land of Love and Drowning for our Contemporary Book Club. Okay, I love Tiffany Lamps and Louis Tiffany Stained Glass, so I was trying to figure out what the, what that was. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, she's an author. I haven't started the book yet. I'm really looking forward to it, but we do have copies here, so come and get one. Uh, so let's see. Uh, Friday, December the 1st, from 10 to 11 a.m., we have Bring Your Own Device Tech Help. So you can come in, bring your phone, bring your iPad, bring your tablet, uh, and uh, and you can get some help from folks here at the library. That's here at the Lansingburg branch. I actually went for tech help at the Albany Public Library a couple months ago, and I was rather relieved to see that the person helping me was older than 12 years old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we do. We do purposely seek out people who uh, who are who appear to be middle aged. We age them up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. All of our staff are trained in tech uh, device help, so you can always stop in and ask. Especially if you're asking about an audiobook or uh, or an ebook or something like that. All of our all of our library staff know how to do that kind of thing. Okay, and then you've got other things. Uh, uh, we always have other things, Brea. Uh, let's see. Saturday, December 2nd, we have a couple of great programs. So at noon here at the branch, we are going to have a WMHT story time with Barbara Lucas reading Bear Snores On. Uh, so it, all, everybody, all the kids that attend that uh, will get to see a reading of the book, get to make some crafts, and they'll get a copy of the book to take home, which is great. Um, and then 3 p.m. on that same day, we have a history of the writing of the of Twas the Night Before Christmas, which I don't know if you know this, Brea, but we have a copy of the original Twas the Night Before Christmas. It's going to be on display for the Victorian Stroll this year, um, and that's why we're having this program the day before the Victorian Stroll at 3 p.m. I didn't know you had the copy, but I do know that Twas the Night Before Christmas was originally published by the Troy Sentinel newspaper. Uh, Here in Troy, New York was the very first publication. 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a copy of it. It's going to be, we got a, a beautiful uh, display case that we're putting it in. It'll be right there on the first floor. Everybody can stop and see it uh, in preparation for, you know, the Victorian stroll and the Christmas holidays. And the date again for the Victorian stroll and when that copy will be on display is? So the date of our lecture on the history of Twas the Night Before Christmas is Saturday, December 2nd at 3 p.m. And the book will be on display at that time. And then the Victorian stroll is the next day, the 3rd of December. We won't be open because it's a Sunday and we do give our employees time to, you know, have a little reprieve. Uh, But everyone is welcome. That is a public event in downtown Troy. Thanks. That was Lori Dreyer, branch manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library, uh, sharing some of the many activities coming up. Check out their website. Thanks, Lori. Thank you, Bria. And I'm here with Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian at Troy Public Library, to hear about some of the upcoming programs for young people. Carol? Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I just want to let your reader, um, your listeners know that we have um, a teen anime club, which is on the fourth Wednesday of the month at the main library from 6 to 7. We also do a regular story time on Thursday mornings at 10.30, and that's for um, ages 0 to 5 with a caregiver. And then we also have take-and-make kits, um, which are fun crafts and activities that parents can pick up the library for the kids. We have them for teens, and we also have them for younger kids. Anything else? Every Saturday, we have Greta the Reading Dog. She's a big, lovable uh, Labradoodle, and she loves to be read to. And this is a great opportunity if your child struggles with reading. They can help build reading confidence. And also, we have Decodable Readers, which are wonderful for kids that are just starting to read on their own. And also, if your child has any sort of reading difficulty, such as dyslexia, um, we have books that will help with that, too. Okay, I encourage people to stop by the Troy Public Library at 100 Second Street because they always have flyers about other activities that come up and lots of wonderful things. Stop in at the Young People Services area just inside the door to see what's going on. And Carol, thanks for your help. Thank you, Bria. And now we're checking in with Ian Halk of Troy Public Library's main branch, head of Adult and Reference Services, to hear about some of the upcoming activities at the main branch. All right. So um, it is still November. Um, so we are still having our last NaNoWriMo group meetups. So anyone uh, participating in NaNoWriMo or uh, is wrapping up, uh, we would love to have you here for our group that our next meeting is on the 28th. We do that between 10 and 11.30 a.m. NaNoWriMo. The National Novel Writing Month. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. And what else you got going on? Um, on Wednesday the 29th at 6 p.m., we have an open uh, knitting group that's been meeting here at the library. And then on the 30th, we are hosting a uh, part one of a community coloring book um, activity. Uh, so part one, registration is required for this event. And then on Saturday, December 2nd, we have a big event coming up. It is the History of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, we are hosting that um, because for those that don't know, Twas the Night Before Christmas does have a local Troy, New York tie. Indeed, and I was in the audience for the court trial in Troy a few years ago about did Clement Moore really write it? 
great event. I wish they'd bring that back. Now, you mentioned the uh, knitting, and we're in a second floor room in the library where there is a shelf of a couple shelves of different color yarns and crochet hooks and books on knitting. Do people have to bring their own needles or do people have to bring anything or do you supply everything? Um, so these are actually things that have been left by the group. Um, so you're, of course, welcome to bring your own things. And um, But sharing, I don't think, would be too much of a problem. Uh, knitters tend to be very friendly and uh, shareable uh, group of people. Anything else going on or previews, sneak previews for December? In December, we are also having a a gingerbread event that is taking place on the 14th. So registration is required for this event. When you register, you will be asked a question of how many people will be in your group. Uh, So you can fill that out. And then on the 14th, we will be hosting you and have the materials to make your own gingerbread house. And the gingerbread house is where the gingerbread men live, right? Uh, That is the rumor, but I won't specify. (laughs) Okay, that was Ian Houck, Adult and Reference Services at Troy Public Library at 100 Second Street in Troy. The website is thetroylibrary.org for more information. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. One of the things I'm thankful for this season is how Lori Dreyer, Carol Roberts and Ian Houck join me each month to bring us their news on activities and their book recommendations. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making it all worthwhile. Bria Barthel has a tremendous collection of stories from the local libraries, wonderful book lists in those stories, and you can find them at mediasanctuary.org. On this week's episode of Rhythm Abillion, Taina Asili talks with Ivelisse Diaz about the world of Bamba. Ivelisse shares her journey from learning Bamba as a child to becoming director of La, es- La Escuela Bamba de Corazon, <laughs> based in Chicago's based in Chicago's Humboldt Park community. Welcome back to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Asili, and today we have the privilege of delving into the vibrant world of the Puerto Rican musical tradition of bomba through the extraordinary journey of Ibelis Bombera de Corazón Díaz. Bomba is an Afro-Puerto Rican musical tradition that emerged 400 years ago during the enslavement of our West African ancestors. It incorporates dance, song, and percussive instruments, including the drum, also called the barril, as well as maraca. And like many Afro-Indigenous folkloric traditions, it was manifested as a way to reclaim our humanity in the face of inhumanity. Century upon century, it has been passed down through the bodies and voices of stewards keeping this tradition alive, maintaining bombasos, or spaces where bomba is practiced, as a way to help us to remember who we are and where we come from. It's now a tradition that's practiced not only in Puerto Rico, but throughout the diaspora, wherever Puerto Ricans reside, from New York City to San Francisco to Chicago. Ivelisse was born and raised in Humboldt Park, the heart of Chicago's Puerto Rican community. Her journey into Bomba began at a young age under the loving mentorship of her uncle Eli S. Rodriguez, a founding member of Chicago's first Bomba y Plena collective, Grupo Yuba, 
Ivelisse's thunderous yet melodic vocals, even at the age of 14, led her to become a lead vocalist in the group. Continuing this legacy, Ivelisse became founding member and lead vocalist of Bomba Combuya, the director of the all-women ensemble Las Bompleneras, and is now director of Bomberes de Cora. She's also founder and director of La Escuelita Bombera de Corazón, which provides classes and workshops covering bomba percussion, dance, vocals, and history. Hello, Imelis. Welcome to the Rhythm of Rebellion. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. You started doing bomba with family at such a young age. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how those early experiences and that guidance shaped you. Being in Bomba uh, since a little kid, right? Since I was five years old. And I say five because five is when I literally remember, you know, practicing basic step. Like I can, I can go back to remembering when I met discipline. First time I met discipline, first time I, I met like dedication and I started understanding that, whoa, I'm dancing with the rhythm that my body holds, but there's more to this. Now I'm five and six years old and I'm like, I'm committed. I'm invested. I love it. I love how I feel. And, you know, coming from a family that's so like pro cultura, Puerto Rico, I'm here, you know, we're from Guayama, the southern side of Puerto Rico. And and coming from a family where we held down traditions, mi abuelo, mi abuela, my mom, my uncle, my aunt, from cooking to el lenguaje. So, Instead of those being things that we that we were ashamed of, it was things that we use as power tools to continue to produce that. Like, you know, the kids in this family, they're going to speak Spanish because once you enter public schools, you know, in the diaspora, everything is English, you know. And right. so I was raised in a home that was very clear and just surrounded by women that were very progressive and innovators. This is how we woke up every day and let's do boom by my aunt making the, the skirts and my tío Eli making the, the vejigante masks y panderos y, and coming together with other practitioners and families that were like, Bomba needs to be here in Chicago también. Acuérdate, these are, it's, it's, it's a flood of Puerto Ricans coming from, you know, into mm. New York and Chicago. So we're like, oof, ya este avión, this four and a half hour flight already feel, ooh, a little bit disconnected. Vamos a hacer un caldero de arroz. Vamos a hacer esto. Vamos a conocer que it's the, it's the smells, right? And so yes. those experiences, like before I start talking about a basic step, una falda or un barril de bomba, like this is the, the tones of voices, the way that you see. Every time you come into a house, tienes que pedir la bendición. Esa disciplina familiar and love is what really molded me to like have this orgullo and this deep, deep, deep like investment, dedication, love to what La Cultura stands for. And this is beautiful black music. This is music of liberation. This is music of resistance. This is music that is a language. And that's what Bomba started. I think always wanting to have a different pipeline to empower folks like this is what our people went through, but this is how we've turned it into powerful tools. And mm. this is why <laughs> still in yes. 2023, right? Folks want to oppress the power that we have. It's really right. ridiculous. So when you think about Bomba like that, you're like, whoa. 
I wanted to understand a little bit more about how bomba is being utilized today in our social movements as a liberation practice. When we talk about bomba and a social movement, right? I think one of the moments that I was like, wow, like we have entered a different level of bomba where now we need to start talking, matching, right? Musicality with our conciencia. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we took out, it was like a repeated history, ¿verdad? Este, when, when we talk about how we used it and si no nos iban a escuchar, íbamos a tocar barriles, how we use it with protests, how we write songs to let you know how we want the power of chanting. When you're trying mm. to give a message and everyone, mm. there's nobody that can stop a hundred people from singing a message. That message se ha regado por todos nuestros ancestros. There's energy all over the world. You know, one person's struggle is your struggle, ¿verdad? If our black and brown people are not free, then it ain't nobody free. Estamos todos conectados. Por eso es importante, when we go back to study bomba, this is why it's not about quién es el mejor musical. Yes, I want the best. Yes, I do. Because we have all the potential. Cuando uno está estudiando un lenguaje, let's stop calling it music. Un lenguaje. Uno practica. Mm. And the way that we play a barril, you see, I like to close my eyes because we are vessels. Right? We are vessels. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about what you look like. You know, but when we close our eyes, are you showing up? Are those hands playing like you know? Is that voice, ah, are you at your full potential where not only do you know the history of Boma, but you know the history yourself, you feel good. Mm. You know, when you have to sing with a maraca, that means that you are el compás y el tiempo de otra cosa. You're time traveling. Whoa, mm. is my voice complimenting how high this maraca is? Why is the maraca louder than me? And I am the storyteller. Mm. I am coming to give these stories or I want you to believe them because we need to be storytellers and pass them on. It's an oral history. Mm. So mira como los social movements say, say, look at how they, how they develop. And it's not so much about like, what do you believe in? Okay, next. <laughs> what do you know how to play? Okay, next. Do you know how to sing? Do you know how to do maraca? Okay, next. No, it's like, hey, how do you, how do you share? What are some behaviors you have? What are some values can we sit down and talk about some community agreements so that we can mm. all make music that aligns with our harmony? And maybe those mm. that are struggling to find their harmony, they can make those sounds when you hear like, oh, look at all those different levels. Look at the harmony when you hear people sing. How can we all be in this space and all have like a centered agreement that we want to be libre in our most authentic selves? Ivelisse, I love the way that you guide this next generation of Bomba, right? Mm. And I was wondering about what advice you might have for that next generation on how to navigate this intricate balance between tradition and innovation mm. in their slash our creative work. You know, we have to dig deeper in order to go higher. It's like that slingshot. Right? The more we go back, nos seteamos, nos preparamos, y estamos... We take a lot of slingshots for different levels in our lives, right? And the best advice that I can give is that there's time, and you do not rush growth, because if you rush growth, 
um, you skip a couple of things that are very important to you growing even more at your fullest potential. Uh, mayores are everything. You pick brains, you don't pick sides. Mayores that we have now um, that are still alive are pipelines, your vessels, your answers to what you're going to be looking for in the next 20 years. I cannot stress that enough. Ashe. Ivelis, thank you so much for taking the time to offer us this gift and for manifesting the way that you do. Thank you. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. The Rhythm of Rebellion profiles performing artists leading social change. And thanks to Taina Seeley for the interview and to Moses Nagel for editing and support for the story. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is also Sina Bazila Hickey. We thank all our volunteers who make today's episode possible. Shouts to Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Brea Barthel. I always mess this name up. Let me say it right. Taina Asili. Taina Asili. And Moses Nagel. This program, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag. Or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Um, full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Thank you so, so very much.